Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome to Unaddiction, the podcast. My name is Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist with a specialty in addiction medicine and co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health. On this podcast, we explore the paths that can lead to addiction and the infinite paths that can lead to recovery. Our guests are sharing their own experiences, the tools that have helped them along the way, and the formulas that allow them to thrive in recovery one day at a time. I am so excited to tell you about my book, Unaddiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life, is now available from Union Square and Company or wherever books are sold. Erin Carr is an author and advocate known for her writing on addiction, recovery, mental health, parenting, and relationships. She knows firsthand the challenges of addiction recovery and has established herself as a respected voice in the national conversation about the overdose epidemic. We touched on so many things from her personal experience with fearing addiction would prevent her from being a good mother to racism in drug policy and her ardent support of harm reduction. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Erin, for joining me on the addiction, I should say, unaddiction podcast. So changing the way people with addiction get treated in this company, not just like by healthcare, but just by people in general has been a passion for my whole career. And so I wrote this book called Unaddiction. It's coming out in January. And we're doing this podcast to raise awareness of the book, which I hope will start to change kind of the narrative and conversation. And what we want to do here with the podcast is talk about unaddiction. What do we need to unlearn that we think we know about addiction? What are the stigmas that we need to undo because they're killing people? What are the conversations that we need to uncover so that we can be talking about things that will actually help us turn the tide on this crisis that we have? And so with that intro to why we're here on the podcast, we're having people who have their own journey and just hoping to learn what your journey has been and what your formula is today in case other people listening that would help them get on the journey or put a piece in their formula that maybe they hadn't thought about. Great. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to talk about addiction, especially when it comes to talking about the ways in which we've been sort of indoctrinated to um, treat addiction and think about addiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it's it's something that's near and dear to my heart, not only as a person in recovery, but as a parent. Um, so delighted to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, Aaron, can you tell the listeners who you are and yeah. how you came to be who you are and what your life is like these days? Sure. So my name is Erin Carr. I'm an author and advice columnist, mother. <laughs> um, I live in New York City. I wrote a book uh, that came out in 2020 called Strung Out, which mm -hmm. is a book about my uh, journey through addiction and recovery. Um, I'll give you a quick, as quick as possible you synopsis don't have of to my be quick. story. <laughs> you don't have to be quick. Um, We've got time. <laughs> So I grew up in an affluent suburb of Los Angeles, um, and when I was eight years old, my parents uh, were separated, and I was going through a period where I was starting to have a lot of anxiety and feelings about something that had happened years before that when I was four that I, I wasn't very clear on at the time mm. because I was eight, <laughs> and I had one afternoon where I heard my mother on the phone. She was in the other room and I could hear she was upset on the phone. And I started having a panic attack. I didn't know mm. it was a panic attack at the time, but that's what I was having. And because I went you were eight. I was eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went into the bathroom and I opened the medicine cabinet and I don't even know what I was looking for, but there was, we had a, a bottle of expired Darvacet Mm -hmm. um, with my grandmother's name on it. It must've been from a surgery, but it had been sitting there for a long time. You know, I'm assuming my mother held onto it in case anybody needed, mm -hmm. you know, it for a headache or something. Um, and I, there was a label on it that said may cause drowsiness. And I had no idea what the medication was. I just was like, Oh, drowsy. I want to be drowsy. Mm. So I took one. And I really liked what it did for me. It gave me uh, like a sort of layer of protection between myself mm -hmm. and my feelings. Mm -hmm. And from that point forward, probably not right away, but you know, over the next few years, if I was in somebody's bathroom and they had something with a do not with a with a drowsy label or don't operate heavy machinery, I would take it. And because I'm you know old, <laughs> they didn't have childproof. Uh, caps mm -hmm. on them then, or I don't remember them. I didn't have any trouble getting into pill bottles. So I would kind of just tuck them away so that if I had a panic attack, I had something to take. And mm -hmm. I, I remember having such a sort of deep-seated shame that I had the anxiety that I had. I was already having a lot of ideation and mm -hmm. thoughts of self-harm. And these were sort of like my emergency stash that I could go to when I felt that way. When I reached the age of 13, there was a confluence of things that happened, you know, like for many young um, female identifying people, I felt like I was getting sort of mixed messages. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I wasn't conscious of this then, but I, looking back, there was sort of this, these mixed messages. I was suddenly five foot eight. I suddenly was aware of the power that being young and female gave me and it was something I had not felt before um on a on sort of an unconscious level I understood that that was currency 
And so there was the sort of um, the, the introduction of like flirting with boys usually older than me and also feeling very insecure about myself. I didn't feel mm. attractive. I didn't feel, I felt that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And as a child, I felt like I had this, you know, overarching feeling like if people could really see who I was, they wouldn't love me because I'm a monster. And I wasn't cognizant of where it exactly came from. Um, I just knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. So I, on a skiing trip- And you're how old by this time, Erin? I was 13. I had just turned 13. 13. So Mm -hmm. it's a week after my 13th birthday. I had made arrangements with somebody I'd met like nine months earlier (laughs) on a ski trip who was older. He was 16. I had made arrangements to like go out on a date with him. I did not tell my mother. Um, I was a competitive equestrian. And so I had told her I was spending the night at a friend's house from Mm -hmm. the barn. She dropped me off. I had my lesson and then I got ready and he picked me up, went to his house. He lived in Beverly Hills. And I told him I, I lied and said that I was 15, but I had really just turned 13 we went to his house. His parents weren't there. And, you know, as we're sitting there talking, I just like the anxiety was building and building and building. And I suddenly we were listening to music in his room and I blurted out, do you have any Vicodin or Valium? And he was kind of surprised that I asked him that. And he's like, no. And then, you know, after a couple of minutes, he's like, have you ever tried heroin? And I said, no. I mean, I knew what it was. I vaguely knew what it was. Right. Um, but but in a limited way from like reading books and I, I was an early reader. So I had read a, I had read books where like drugs came into the picture, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really thought about them in any concrete way. And he said, you know, do you want to try it? And I was like, sure. I mean, there was no hesitation for me. And, you know, as I've talked to people over the years during my recovery, like from my parents to to, you know, strangers, there's there's been a, a constant sort of like struggle to understand like how somebody makes that decision. And the way that I always mm-hmm. explain it is that the addiction was there before drugs came in to the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't a question for me because I just wanted, I, I would have taken anything to make me feel something other than how I felt. Yeah. Good, ba- yep. good or bad. Yeah. Um, so that was the, I, on that night, 10 days after my 13th birthday, I tried heroin for the first time and lost my virginity. And I had a very, you know, sort of strange experience with that too, because I became sort of more aware that like, that it wasn't the first time that I had been in a sexual situation. Mm. And as I sort of, you know, got into my teenage years, realized that the truth was I had been molested when I was Mm -hmm. four by an adolescent boy who was the son Mm. of family friends. It happened repeatedly Mm. and I had never told anyone. And I I think that for me, that was really uh, kind of at the root of why I thought there was something wrong with me. And uh, so from that point forward, I started using heroin with my boyfriend. He became my boyfriend on weekends, but you know, it was, it didn't get out of control right away. I was hiding it all through, you know, for like a two and a half year period, I was using drugs, mostly just heroin, some cocaine, um, never alcohol or marijuana, <laughs> it was just drugs and and pills, continued using pills. Um, but, you know, I 
had, you know, straight A's. I was popular, had a lot of friends. I was a cheerleader, a volleyball player, a competitive equestrian. So throughout my teenage years, I was using off, you know, using if I wasn't, I stopped using heroin when I was 15, but I continued taking a lot of pills, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, you know, crystal meth, different things like that. Um, And then in my early 20s, at 21, I started using heroin again. Um, It again came on like the heels of like, it was an emotional sort of like breakup kind of Mm -hmm. thing. and, And that's when I started using um, when I was 23, uh, the person who I'd been upset over, he and I had gotten back together. We were in a long distance relationship between Paris and Los Angeles. He came to Los Angeles. Um, we were engaged to be married. And after he was there for a few weeks, he caught me, like literally caught me using drugs. Mm. And he, his, so he had no idea. He had no idea. Mm. Nobody, I mean, for 10 years, between 13 to 23, I hid this other than from a couple of people who I confided in, from every friend, family member, teachers, nobody knew. And people were pretty shocked in my family um, and definitely among a lot of my friends. And I, you know, that's one of the things I, I think that part of the reason that I hid so successfully for 10 years is because I didn't look like what their image of a drug addict looked like. Right. And uh, so let's stay here for a second, because spot on, that's one of the things we think we know that Mm -hmm. we need to unlearn is quote unquote, what a person with addiction looks like. And I think um, the other thing that really struck me, you ran it down like spot on. You're like, I was a cheerleader, volleyball player, Mm -hmm. competitive equestrian. I had straight A's. I had a lot of friends. All of the things we use to that are performative Mm -hmm. to tell us we don't need to be worried about a person that blinds us to there had to be signs that we just couldn't see because we've been programmed. Like if you have good grades and you're playing a sport, everything is great. But that pain, I really love what you said. You said the addiction was there before I ever picked up a drug. I talk about this concept, you know, um, People are like the opioid crisis was driven by the physical pain crisis. And I'm like, the opioid crisis was driven, is driven by an emotional pain crisis that has always been there. Yeah. And so like, yeah, heroin is not a risky decision when you're sitting in the amount of pain you had been sitting in for five full years, really since you were four, but cognitive, you know, consciously for five full years by the time you got to that point. Right. And, you know, I mean, I say often to people that like heroin prevented me from killing myself. And I'm not suggesting that as a solution for people. However, I didn't have the tools. I didn't feel like I could go to my parents because I had so much shame about it. Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel like there was anyone I could turn to. And I had to, if I was going to survive, I had to figure this out. And so it really was a means of survival for me. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate what you said about the opioid crisis because, you know, I do a lot of speaking with legislators about drug policy reform, speaking with mental health professionals, uh, people in the medical industry, law enforcement, and parents. And um, one of the, you know, 
biggest failures <laughs> in our country around drug policy is the idea of the war on drugs. And then mm-hmm. later on, this sort of like, let's punish pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. That is not to say that they did not market things and take advantage of a situation and that there were pill mills and all of that. Yes, but it is never a supply issue. That's it right. is always a demand issue. And the reason that we have the pro- proliferation of fentanyl in the drug market and now xylazine in the drug market is 100% a result of our failed war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And this idea that we're going to name fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction and that's going to somehow like, and we're going to put drug dealers in jail for life sentences is the most ridiculous waste of money and ruining more lives. Mm-hmm. Um because it's not, it's just going to, we're going to find other things to put into drugs. That's right. right. So the reason that, you know, part of the reason that fentanyl became such a flooded the market is that of course it's, it's you can smuggle in the chemicals to make fentanyl in much smaller amounts than, you know, having a poppy field cultivating, (laughs) cultivating the plants and then smuggling large amounts of drugs into the country. This is not the fault of Mexico. This is not the fault of China. This is not because we need stricter borders. This is because we have a mental health crisis, largely based on the systemic failure to support people on every level. And Um, starting so early in childhood, literally before you're born, it starts. Yes. We spend 10 times the amount we spend on drug prevention on incarcerating people for drug related offenses per year. If we took one, one one hundredth of our military budget or one one hundredth of, of what we pay private, <laughs> private prison, you know, pay to the private prison system to incarcerate folks, we would be in a much different position. Mm-hmm. There is not a one size fits all solution, in my opinion, to treating addiction. It, there is, I, you know, I'm skeptical even to the efficacy of rehabs. <laughs> I think that it's really about long term care and support. And I mean, we'll get there, I'm sure, as we talk. Let's get there. Stuff. Let's get there now. So you're kind of okay. jumping us. <laughs> two, two things you have <laughs> pinging in my head. Um, so the book is laid out in these six conversations, and it's really about biological risk. It's empowering people with information to like right. evaluate their own risk and get a formula in place for themselves to either prevent the first drug use or to get arms around a drug use once it started. We're 100% on the same page. Like there is no one size fits all. So I say there are infinite paths into addiction. There have to be infinite paths out like yours is going to be yours. And so we talk about you inherit a set of conditions a set mm-hmm. of biological conditions. That's your DNA. You carry, we carry genetic risk for substance use disorders mm-hmm. in our DNA. You inherit a set of psychological conditions. That's when you're a child. And so ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, right? right. right? You have run down three major ACEs yeah. already, right? Just like on this call, your parents separating when you were young, the sexual assault you experienced when you were young. We're mm-hmm. talking now about incarceration and how that takes parents out of the house that is like mm-hmm. specifically named as one of the aces. On the other side of that is positive childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. They mitigate 
the risk that those aces give us later in life. And you're like, if we spent one one hundredth of the prison budget on getting pieces in place, positive childhood experiences, we would bend the curve. The last one is environmental, right? So this 16-year-old boyfriend also had heroin. Right. So like what's going, what is this 16 year old's environment and his ACEs and his psychological risk factors and his biological risk factors? Mm-hmm. And then the last part of the book is like, okay, and then you also acquire more in adulthood. So biologically, anxiety, physical pain, mm-hmm. psychologically, traumas that happen later in life, socially, support systems, socioeconomic factors. And so it's like, if you look at your inherited factors, Mm-hmm. and you look at your acquired factors, you can start to put together a formula for yourself mm-hmm. that addresses those biological, psychological, environmental risk factors inherited and acquired. Mm-hmm. And so to your comment, I'm skeptical about the um, benefit of rehab. Mm-hmm. One, that's because this is a chronic medical condition. So like, do we think you can fix diabetes in 30 days? And no, we do not. Two, because this is not one size fits all. So do we think we can give everybody with diabetes the exact same diet and the exact same dose of insulin it's supposed to work? Like, no, that's balderdash crazy talk, right? Mm-hmm. And so- When you think about how you came to understand what your formula is, how did you even start the path? How did Mm -hmm. you get to the mix of um, formula things that you're doing today that are working? And if you can share with us what they are, because maybe it'll work for somebody else. Sure. So, you know, first, I, you know, I I tell people, (laughs) you know, I was never arrested and that's, because of my skin color mm-hmm. and because I came from a socioeconomic background mm-hmm. where I had financial support. So I had a decent car, I, you know, access to money, um, all of those sorts of factors. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when, so when I got caught at 23, I went to rehab because my fiance at the time was so upset that I just, I had, I called my mom because I didn't know what to do with his like, I mean, when I say explosive, not like physically towards me, but he was mm-hmm. just, you know, crying and yelling and mm-hmm. half in French, half in English. And I just felt like I had to get away from him. So I went to rehab and um, it was not a bad experience at all. Um, it laid, you know, a lot of what I did in my two stints in rehab <laughs> laid the foundation for my recovery. However, mm-hmm. after that first trip to rehab, it took me another five and a half years mm. of near constant relapse mm-hmm. to finally get to a place where I was able to address the real root issues. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a person who necessarily felt like I like the disease model of alcoholism and addiction resonated with me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't do it because it wasn't that I wasn't working the steps in a 12-step program or that I didn't want it. I just I would get to a point with emotional pain where I felt like I wanted to rip my skin off or jump yeah. out the window. And I yeah. would literally sit on my hands and count. So like like when I same thing I did when I was a kid, so I wouldn't harm myself. Mm. I you know, the other thing I the reason that I say that too is that in speaking to people, you know, I think in American culture there is 
there is this sort of like idea of like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps mm-hmm. and you know, well, like, you know, well, he got out of the ghetto and did and you know, if he can do it and and I like to say a couple of things about that. Number one, I know from personal experience, yes, sure, there are people who are able to get out of really horrible situations, right? So they're born into to to poverty mm-hmm. um, and they get themselves out of it. Great. That's wonderful. But I think the majority of people need a little bit more support. Yeah. So you know why we know who they are, Aaron? Because they're exceptional. Oh, oh, the people who, you're right, the people who make it out. Yes. Yeah. That's why we and know the, them because they are literally the exception to the rule. Yes. And I think it's, it's, it's that they are exceptional and sometimes it's luck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, when I say exceptional, I don't mean, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I don't mean like they're an exceptional person and you're not. I mean, they are the exception. A hundred percent. No, I knew what you meant. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so I say to people, look, I had all of the, my, my family was supportive. They did not turn their backs mm-hmm. on me. I had access to mental health care. I had access mm-hmm. to physical health care. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, plenty of friends and family who were supportive to me. And it still took me five and a half years of constant mm-hmm. relapse. Mm-hmm. Um, when you add in other factors like race, religion, other cultural factors, poverty, you you stack so many more obstacles to accessing treatment because I am sure that you understand as a black person living in America that the the quality and accessibility of care is not equal that's to right. people of color. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that that like does not always get addressed when people are treating addiction. And I mm-hmm. think that it has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um other part of it, you know, and this kind of ties back into sort of like the war on drugs theory is that, you know, I think that the majority of people who are drug dealing are also trapped in the same ecosystem based out of trauma, poverty, um, you know, racial oppression, all of those sorts of things. It's 100%. the same, all the same ecosystem. So, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. So for me, you know, I, when I was 28 years old, I had relapsed again. I found out I was pregnant. I had had an abortion two years before that. Um, and I'm completely pro-choice and, you know, I'm glad that I had that abortion at the time that I did, but it was psychologically and emotionally a very traumatizing Mm -hmm. experience for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I got pregnant again at 28, I made the decision to have the baby probably against everybody's better judgment. And of course, like they didn't know that I was strung out again. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, had spoken to one doctor and they said, well, you know, the protocol at that time was to put women on methadone maintenance, Mm -hmm. which I know it works for some people, but I really did not want to go on methadone. I had never been on methadone. And then I found a doctor who was willing to detox me over seven days using buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I was like, okay, I, I did use drugs in the beginning of my son's pregnancy, but I knew that I didn't want him to be born addicted to anything. Mm-hmm. Found this doctor who helped me, and I knew that I would stay off of drugs for the duration of the pregnancy because I had been able to accumulate months at a time before. Okay. I think months was the most I nine or ten months was the most I'd ever accumulated at that point. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When he was born, you know, I, I was sort of ambivalent about actually being a mother, did not think that I was going to be capable of it. My mm. parents didn't think I was going to be capable of oh. it. My ex, that my son's father, you know, he had meetings because he was not he was not a drug user. He had meetings with my parents about sort of contingency plans for mm. when I relapse. <laughs> and when my son was born, I held him and I looked into his eyes and there was, I had a lightning bolt moment where I just looked at him and thought, I love you more than I hate myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do everything I can to stay off of drugs. <laughs> so it was not the reason that I stayed off of drugs. You know, he was the catalyst. Mm-hmm. And that is not in any way to say that parents who are not able to overcome their addiction when they become parents, that, that that I loved my son more. Not at all. I had a lightning bolt moment and then I had access, most importantly, to my mental health care. Mm-hmm. And I had the financial support of my family while I got back on my feet. When I, as a new mom, I didn't have to work at the time. I was able to, I had some support. I mean, I had the support of his father and then also for my family so that I didn't, I could kind of get myself stable. Um. You know, it, that doesn't mean that I did it perfectly. I still, you know, had like had a lot of trouble with my own emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. It took, you know, time. It took medication. It took a lot of these things. But, you know, in March of next year, it will be 21 years of mm-hmm. sustained recovery, mm-hmm. which I didn't think was possible for yeah. me. Yeah. So talk to me about the formula. Before you do, first of all, I want to say, so you're describing what we would call diagnostically a severe opioid use disorder. Right. Um, opioid use disorder, we measure it now, mild, moderate, severe. Severe substance use disorder. Your natural history of the disease is what we call it of doctors is like, what does it usually look like um, mm-hmm. is exactly spot on. So usually people start struggling. They struggle for about five years before they even approach the treatment system for help the first time. 
And then there are um, periodic relapses for eight years and then sustained recovery for a year and relapse risk falls a bit and then five years and it falls significantly. So you are like exactly in that time frame for severe substance use disorder. And yet we're still out here saying like, oh, you had to go to rehab twice. That's something about you. Like, oh, oh, whatever. I'm about to start getting on a soapbox. So I'll just avoid it. But no, it's true. I mean, it's not. It's, you know, there's, I, um, oh, I was listening, I was listening to a podcast where there was a police officer who had struggled with addiction and he said something like he wasn't sure if the policy had changed, but when he was in the force, they had just started letting police officers go to rehab, but only for alcohol. Oh my God. <laughs> Not for drugs. And then it was, and then they changed it. And then it was that they could go to rehab, but only once. And the idea that, you know, that we expect people people to just snap their fingers and have their entire constitution change in 28 days is so ridiculous. And as you pointed out before, you know, it would, with different treatment protocols, if we were treating cancer or any Mm -hmm. other serious illness, if something isn't working, then we're like, okay, let's try this. One of the things like when I was first trying to get recovery in 12 step meetings, it was very, you know, very hardlined on abstinence based recovery. And I, so I was like, oh, you know, if somebody's on methadone, they're not really in recovery or if somebody's, you know, and I, at the time, like I had started Wellbutrin in recovery and then I, some people were like, well, that's not recovery. And I'm like, so I kept going off of it and then I was so crazy and, you know, yep. it was really a struggle. And obviously now my viewpoint is so different because recovery Abs- recovery d- is not the definition of recovery is an abstinence. Boom. Say <laughs> it again louder for the people in the back. Yes. The definition of recovery does not include abstinence. Abstinence that if abstinence is part of your recovery, great. But mm-hmm. that's not what recovery is. It's about getting back something that you lost. Part of your health, your life, your ability to be a part of society. Your ability to believe yeah. you could be a mother to your right. son. Right. This is what recovery is, right? Oh, if somebody had told me, even while I was pregnant, that I would be able to not just stay off of drugs, but Mm -hmm. to be able to go through life and not feel on a daily basis like I wanted to die, Mm. I wouldn't have believed them. Yeah, I I didn't think that happiness was a possibility for me. Mm. Um, And... You know, that doesn't mean that I'm happy all the time, but in general, I'm very, you know, I, I'm very grateful for the life that I have, the life that I didn't think was possible. I have two beautiful children. I have a loving husband. I have a good relationship with my family and I don't struggle with, you know, it doesn't mean I never have a bad day, but I just, the difference, you know, I guess we can talk about this in terms of like tools. I mean, according to Megan the Stallion, bad bitches have bad days too. Exactly. So talk to us about your formula. Talk to us sure. about your formula for your recovery today. So my formula for my recovery today is largely based the the like the number one thing is honesty with myself about what I'm feeling, mm. accepting what I'm feeling and, and not judging, accepting not judging it and mm-hmm. learning to ask for help. 
Mm. So here's a good example is that, you know, I, I don't struggle with cravings for opiates anymore. And I, I joke that like, I think I used up all of my good receptors because anytime I've had surgery and they've given me pain medication, all it does is make me feel, it doesn't even like help really with the pain. I'm like, I, there's no release. There's no like, <laughs> baby, there's no, it's such a letdown. I'm <laughs> like, oh, great. <laughs> You're not meeting my expectations. No, I, mean, I had surgery last year and I was like joking with somebody because they sent me home with a lot of pain medication. And for me, with when I've had surgeries, I'm like, first 48 hours, take the pain medication. Don't That's try right. and avoid it. Get yep. ahead of the pain yep. and then go off. But I, I, every time I'm like, I never even make it the full 48 hours because I just, it makes me feel really anxious and depressed. Mm. Because my, I think my body is like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna start going into withdrawals, mm-hmm, even though it's mm-hmm. one day. Yeah, the physiology <laughs> remembers. Yeah, it does. So I don't struggle with those cravings, right? That has really gone away for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 2020, my book came out ten days before the shutdown. I was on book tour and ended up coming home early. I did four book tour events and then had to cancel 17 events. Oof. And it was such a disappointment. And then I was home with my husband and I both working from home, a two-year-old and a 16-year-old. Everybody was miserable. And I started having those, like, not in a real way, but those, like, feelings. Like, I remember sitting one day and thinking, like, I I just felt so sad and scared and depressed about everything. And I was like, I, you know, if you just jumped out the window, this could all just, you wouldn't be upset right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not that I felt like I was in danger of doing it, but that the thought even went through my head. I was like, so what I did is I told my husband, I called my best friend, told her how I was feeling. I called my psychiatrist and made an appointment. I called my therapist and made an emergency session. Yep. They like, you know, I'm starting to have like panic attacks at night again. Like, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Rather than just pretending because my my first instinct is always just like pretend everything's just push through, you know, I was not, I mean, I joke that like that sort of like push through attitude. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I kicked heroin on airplanes at work. Like, I mean, just like, I just would always just be, have this thing, like, if I pretend it's not happening, I'll be okay, mm-hmm. which is terrible, you know, and now I don't do that. So that's, that's sort of like my baseline. And, and then I have learned, you know, I've learned more about myself and my, my psychological makeup. I've learned more about the way that my brain works. Um, you know, I, I think that I had so many different diagnoses thrown at me over the years. Um, everything from, you know, like uh, generalized anxiety to OCD to bipolar 2 <laughs> to borderline personality disorder was thrown at me all the time. And, you know, now I, you know, with the psychiatrist I have now for the longest time, he kept saying, you know, I really, you know, have you ever been screened for ADHD? And I was like, mm. no, I'm like, I did really well in school. I'm like, you know, and was to finally went through the diagnostic test and lo and behold, and looked at sort of family. And, and I really think so much of it was just trauma and ADHD. Mm-hmm. And when I learned how to manage my ADHD, which isn't just medication, it's a whole holistic, you know, toolbox. Yeah. Um, 
the difference, my insomnia went away for the first time in my life. Mm. And I realized how there were so many things that I could do to help my brain that was constantly looking for dopamine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there were just little things. And so I do those things, you know, whether it means like, okay, tell us some, yeah, tell us some of these things, run it down. Sounds so silly and basic. No, it doesn't. Uh, My quickest hack to an ADHD or any kind of dopamine fix (laughs) is a checklist. (laughs) And oh my God, yes. When I'm really struggling, that check checklist includes like getting up at a certain time, brushing my teeth, Mm -hmm. making the bed, Mm -hmm. every little you know, minute thing, because every little check, I start to feel like I can do the next one. And I can, I can see, okay, this is the next thing on my list. And this is the next thing. Yeah. I have a little list that I run through in my head when I'm feeling like I'm not regulating my emotions well, Mm -hmm. or I'm feeling overwhelmed. And that is water, sleep, food, outside <laughs> so because that's like hungry angry lonely tired uh-huh so it's always what i mean funny enough like water tends to get <laughs> seems to solve like 90 percent of my problems but often i just need to get outside and go for a 10 minute walk yeah and i tell people like in an emergency like a panic you know obviously there's a certain point that this wouldn't work for a panic attack but if i start to feel like the edginess come on say i'm at I mean, this is just like a random, like if I was at like a dinner party and I'm, you know, I'm having some sort of like feeling (laughs) where I feel overwhelmed, I just get up to use the restroom and just let my hand, like let cool water run on my hands. Mm. And, you know, I feel like, you know, in my, as it's happening, I feel like, oh, I'm literally cooling down my nervous system. It just gives me that little break to get back into present time you know, so much of it is around mindfulness, which I didn't know that that's what it was as I started learning to do these things through cognitive behavioral therapy. But those things really, really work for me. So, um, you know, definitely for me, I still am on Wellbutrin. I don't think I'll ever go off of it. (laughs) Because the difference for me is, yes, I was able to still parent and function without it. But I struggled so much more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to not have that struggle and to have those extreme ups and downs was really really invaluable for me i mean i it was a game changer so it's met for me it's medication it's um being able knowing how to ask for help it's taking care of myself physically Mm -hmm. um and and i think with all of those things it's like you know the adage that self-esteem is based on doing esteemable things. Like part of learning to love yourself is to physically take care of yourself. And I think, you know, I didn't for such a long time. And I probably in my years of active addiction only took care of myself out of my own vanity, not because I loved myself, which is an embarrassing thing to admit, but it's true, (laughs) you know? So I, but now, you know, if I am, having a really hard day and I have all this other stuff that I should do for work, but you know, I don't have to do, (laughs) I will like give myself the afternoon off and like give myself permission to take a nap if I need to have a nap. I love it. I think we all need timeouts and timeouts aren't punitive. Timeouts are a, a moment to like recalibrate and have some like stillness. 
Um, another thing that really, really helped me, which I sort of stumbled into, but it goes back to mindfulness, is kundalini yoga. When Ooh. Atticus, my first child, was was born, I found this these mommy and me kundalini yoga classes near near where I lived in Los Angeles and started going. And kundalini yoga, for people who aren't familiar, is really based around breath. So it's a lot of holding poses or doing simple movements while breathing a specific way. I am not an expert, so I hope I'm explaining that well, but that's what it was for me. So it taught me, I feel like kundalini yoga taught me how to sit in my body because so much of my life I wanted out of my body and I wanted to disconnect. And it allowed me to learn how to kind of sit through that sit in my body, be present in my body and not want to leave. Mm. And by doing that, it taught me as I went on and added other things to it, how to sit in discomfort. And I'm not, I'm not saying like be uncomfortable, like to punish yourself when you could be comfortable, but we all go through things in life that are painful. You know, um, before I, I have another son who's six years old, but right before I got pregnant with him, I had been pregnant and I was well into my second trimester and went into premature labor and delivered a stillborn child. And oh God, Aaron. it was so painful. And I remember like the one comforting thing was I sat there. I was, <laughs> my, my husband took my other son to, to, a, to a Drake concert at Madison Square Garden that night. And it was the first time I had been alone since this had happened. And I sat in my shower sat on the floor and just sobbed. Mm -hmm. But then I had that thought like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I know I will. Yep. Because I had been through enough of it that I knew that I had that, I had had, you know, enough, you know, I think I had like what, 14 years, 14 years, 13 years in recovery at the time. So I knew that I could do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I mean, I think that's that's why we need continued support and recovery, especially in the first three years. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you may need to like, you know, I still need it, but like, you know, it's 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 really such a big part of it. Um and and when people are in in more dire situations, if they're unhoused, they've been incarcerated, they're obviously facing like even bigger obstacles. Yeah. One thing that's really passionate. I'm really passionate about is speaking, you know, I mentioned before, speaking with legislators about drug policy reform in most places in drug court, if if somebody has a dirty test, meaning that they show that they had used drugs, um, they're kicked out of the drug court program. But there have been judges that are- When really you need that. more. You need more. So this, I, two years ago, I read an article in the New York Times about this judge in New Mexico that had started- had changed it so that as long as you continue um, act, you know, continue coming to get care, you won't be kicked out of the program because he recognized because, that. Yeah. Like if your cancer comes back, no more chemo for you. Right. Do we think that's going to fix right. your cancer? I want to, I want to step back because Aaron, you kind of introduced your to-do list. You were kind of like, I mean, it's not a big deal. And then you ran down like so many things that were, amazing <laughs> and so I just want to take a second to say you ran down this whole list of things that was amazing what was amazing about it is one it started with what I would call early warning signs mm -hmm. you recognize 
before you're too far down the painful pathway, like, oh, I can recognize this pain in an early state now. Mm -hmm. And then you already have an action plan that you don't have to try to figure out in real time because you already have it. You're like, oh, checklist, get up, take a shower, brush your teeth, make your bed. And that's, that's kind of like your... I don't feel good and I'm going to turn this around over some period of time kind of mm-hmm. strategy. And then you talk to us about like being at dinner and being in a moment right now where mm-hmm. like I need to have a turnaround right now. And you already had a plan for that. And you're like, I'm going to go to this bath. I'm, I already have my social graces. Excuse me. I'm just going right. to go to the ladies room for a minute. And then you go and you have your your routine for how you ground yourself and get yourself mindful with your breath and with cold water. Mm-hmm. This is one, what we need to be teaching kids. Yes, yes. <laughs> but two, even as adults, right? Like if you know this emotional pain is not going to kill me because I have a strategy for how I can get through it, And you don't have to try to figure out that strategy. Like I always say, the reason I would die in a race car race is because I don't have a strategy for when the car spins. Right, right. The race car driver already has their strategy. They don't have to try to figure it out in the moment, right? And so like what I want people to hear, one, you know what the pieces of your formula are. And Mm -hmm. two, part of a huge piece of that formula is being able to recognize early when I'm not quite myself having the plan for who do I reach out to? What do I do? What strategies do I use? This is the same thing. I always bring it back. Cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma. It's like diabetes. You know why we check your blood sugar? Because we want to know that it's going up so we can intervene before you're in a coma. Right. Or we want to know when it's too low and you know when you have low blood sugar, drink some orange juice. You don't have to figure that out in the moment. We already set the plan right. in advance. So I thought that was so interesting. You're like, I mean, here's a little something. And then like gave a master class, <laughs> which was amazing. Okay, it is. We have come to the end. And listen, I usually remember in the middle and then I say, oh, I forgot to tell you at the end. I'm going to ask you this question. And we just got all the way to the end and I never remembered. So sorry, you have zero prep time. So this is going to be like straight from the heart off the dome. <laughs> um, I ask everybody to close us out with if there is one thing informed by your experience, by your passions that you want people to unlearn, undo or a conversation to uncover. What would you leave us with? Well, the first thing that pops into my head is sort of how we talk to our kids about drugs. Mm. Um, the, the book that I wrote, Strung Out, opens with my son asking me, Mom, did you ever do drugs? He was 12 years old. He was about 10 months younger than I was when I first used heroin. And I didn't know how to answer the question. And the book is somewhat an answer to that question, mm. right? And I did eventually have a conversation with him when before he turned 13. And I think that, you know, the the greatest gift that we can give our children is to start having the conversation as soon as they're talking 
And the conversation starts around emotional regulation. Yes. You don't have to mention the word drugs. And then as they get older and we start talking about drugs and what they might encounter in the world, we don't do it with the old like framework that I grew up with, like this like just say no, you know, scary tactics. Mm -hmm. Um, with my older son as he entered his teenage years and we talked about it, I gave him information. I made him do naloxone training with me. Because now he's 20 and he's in the city, but he's in his own apartment. I've like foisted, you know, fentanyl testing strips and naloxone on him and his roommates. And he, you know, rolls his eyes. He's like, Mom. And he's like, I'm not, you know, I said, I know. I said, but if you ever decide to try something, you have it there. Or if somebody you know tries something, you have it there. Because at various times, like 40% of the cocaine and Molly in New York City will have fentanyl in it. That's right. So it's not the same as even when I was a kid. I didn't. It's even riskier now. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. I get connected to parents frequently who've lost teenage children mm -hmm. to accidental overdose, and I think that the the greatest thing that we gift we can give our our children is to give them all of the information in a neutral way. Substances are neutral. They are. They don't have an agenda. They are not alive. You know, fentanyl was originally developed to treat severe pain, and it's effective at that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's also effective at dulling emotional pain, which is why people will reach for it. That's right. So it's also effective at stopping your breathing, which is why people yes. will die from it. Yes, and and I think that you know, giving our kids the tools to have some agency over their decision-making, build self-efficacy, build self-esteem, and they are more likely to make informed, healthy decisions. One of the things that I am so proud of with my son is that he had a friend who was going to like knowingly try fentanyl when he, you know, and he text messaged me and he said, do you think you could just talk to him like, will you FaceTime with us? So I did. And I, I didn't tell him, don't do it, you'll die. I just said, you know, th these are the these are the facts that I know based on the most current information. If you decide to do it, this is how you do it so you don't die. That's you right. You absolutely need to have somebody else there. You need to have naloxone and fentanyl testing strips. I can tell you where to get it, but don't do it without those. I love it. And, and you know, I've had some people like, when I've talked to parents about this before and they're like, well, isn't that just like giving them like, you know, license to do it? And I said, no, I said, they're an individual. I'm not going to have control over my child for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. I, it's an illusion that we have control over them now. Today, exactly. So the best thing I can do is give him all of the information and give him access and tools to things that will save his life if he chooses to do them. Because there is no parent who would rather have you know, would you rather have a kid who's never going to try drugs or a dead kid? Like you want, no one's going to recover if they're not alive. So that's like, that's, you know, why I'm such a proponent of harm reduction and harm reduction education. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be done early. It needs to start, like I said, with emotional regulation. And then as we start to talk about substance use, we give them neutral information mm -hmm. in an age appropriate way so that they have the agency and self-efficacy to make decisions for themselves. I love it. We start having the conversation as soon as they can talk. I love it. Aaron, thank you so much. This was amazing. I would love to meet you in person someday. Me too. <laughs> this was so fun. When I come to New York City, I'm going to be like, hey, girl. 
you have to. Definitely, please let me know. I would love to yeah. meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. All right, Jada. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like this episode, please check out my book, On Addiction, Six Mind-Changing Conversations That Could Save a Life. Available at Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, Union Square & Company, Amazon, and wherever books are sold. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone you think may need to hear it. Also, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five-star review. That helps us reach any and everyone who may be looking for support in the face of addiction. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.